This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to episode 242 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me, as he does every week, this week fresh from Dragon Con, the wonderful Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Dan. I've got just a slight bit of con crud um really mm. exhausted so to say that i'm fresh off a of dragon con i don't really <laughs> feel very fresh right now <laughs> maybe survivor of dragon con might be better <laughs> i should get a, a shirt that says i survived dragon con that would be awesome i bet there's people that actually have that oh i'm sure yeah <laughs> yeah dragon con is uh it's something that i've always wanted to go to i always enjoy following uh your guys posts from uh Facebook and stuff because it looks like a really great event and I'm always sad that I, I can't it's a little far for me unfortunately well you know dreams can come true Dan there's nothing that says that you can't make it well that's true that's true maybe someday I'll, I'll add it to the bucket list okay <laughs> <laughs> awesome well we have uh, the feature that we're going to be talking about today is a Star Trek the next generation novel Diplomatic Implausibility by Keith R.A. DeCandido. But before we get to that, we do have one comic to review, and that's The Next Generation's Terra Incognita, issue number three. So let's dive into that right away. And uh, first of all, Bruce, what were your kind of initial thoughts about this one? Well, I didn't know exactly what it would be about because in the first one it was about the mere Barkley invading our universe the prime universe of the enterprise and no one knows that mere Barkley has replaced the prime Barkley he has prime Barkley in prison and then we get to the next comic and it has nothing really to do with Barkley at all and then the second one had nothing to do with that it was about Troy on the shuttle and they're on with Vulcans and they crashed because they're on this diplomatic mission to talk to Cardassian. So it really had nothing to do. And then going into this one, I thought, well, maybe this is a different storyline. Maybe it's another little separate story, which it is, but I didn't know what it was about. So my initial impressions were, as soon as I got to the first page of the comic, I was like, oh yes, this is what I want. Do you know why? 
I'm curious. Because I noticed that this was a backstory on Solar, Dr. Solar on The Next Generation. And I don't know mm-hmm. if I've ever seen that before. I don't know if we've ever had a backstory in a novel or a comic before. Not that I can recall. I don't know about a backstory. I know, of course, she's one of the main characters on New Frontier. So she gets a lot of uh, further exploration there. But as far as, yeah, her backstory and her childhood and that kind of thing, I don't think we've ever seen before. So, yeah, this was a really cool take. And what a really cool character to center everything on, too. Solar, I think, is just one of those interesting characters who only showed up the one time even though you know we hear her name a few times in the background and that sort of thing so we, sh- we know she's still around but also i have to say played by the wonderful susie plaxon her first star trek role so uh yeah this was an interesting choice i was not expecting this at all either so that what was your first impression then did when you saw this i was yeah surprised but also pleased as well because like i say this is a character who i find really interesting even though that we don't know much about her and you know anytime they can take a story that's set during the next generation and do something different with it like talk about solar's character or something like that i i'm behind like i thought this was really good we get a little bit more of Barkley in this one than we did the last one. And I saw, so in the last episode, of course, Barkley is in the shuttle bay just before the shuttle takes off and the shuttle ends up crashing. And I didn't think about it at the time, but a few people online have said, did Barkley do something to the shuttle that made them crash? Mm, yeah. Why didn't we think of that? That's a good point. That could be possible. Yeah. But there was nothing that was hinted at that he had done something. No, I, I don't think so. But it's an interesting thought because if that's the case, the pattern almost seems to continue in this novel. I could be wrong. But so we've got basically this medical emergency the vulcan ambassador was injured in the shuttle crash in the last uh issue i wanted to say episode because i'm all into the tng uh during the series timeline here but yeah the vulcan um ambassador whose name is hendrick which i thought was a different weird name for a vulcan but this vulcan ambassador hendrick you mean jimmy hendrick is that his name? Yeah. Jimmy Hendrick? Jimmy. First name Jimmy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so he's injured in that shuttle crash, and Dr. Salar is one of the doctors attending to him because of her familiarity with Vulcan medicine, of course. But they need to do kind of neural stimulation with this um, neural stimulator net, I think, or something like that, that Barkley ends up working on because he's supposedly famously proficient at micro circuits like that and the vulcan ends up dying so again we've got kind of barclay's hands in something that ends in not the best of circumstances i don't know what possible motivation he would have for crashing the shuttle or making sure this vulcan guy died but it makes me wonder i hadn't thought about that at the time of reading it i can see that being a possibility i but it's like you're saying i don't know what the motivation would be behind that i almost feel like he wants to redeem the prime barkley 
into being a more respected Barkley. And he's filling his shoes and trying to show the crew that Barkley is more than this sniveling little wimp of a Barkley that they know of. That was almost like the feeling of motivation I thought behind Barkley initially. So I don't know why he would kill an ambassador he doesn't know anything about or he's not... is he try, uh, trying to ruin negotiations, I guess? Because that would also play into the second comic and try to you know prevent peace-loving negotiations. And But he hasn't been very mm. successful at it, even though he rolls up his sleeves all the time. <laughs> That's true. And the other thing I think that would go against this theory is we get Sonia Gomez assisting him in working on this thing too. So... I would think that if he did something to it that would make it not work right, she might have noticed. So I, I don't think it's the case necessarily, but I thought it was an interesting pattern that in two issues, we've got something that he's worked on or had some part in that has ended up in something bad happening. But uh, like the doctors say, he was in rough shape and it was kind of a long shot that this would work anyway. So maybe it's just that. Yeah, and I know LaForge makes the comment that, wow, Barkley's really changed. He's more confident. Like, you know, I like him better. You know, he seems to be more adjusted and more efficient. And I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't think that's the motivation we were talking about earlier, that theory, but it certainly could be. And he's also getting a second date with Gomez. So that's pretty cool. Hey, that's the whole reason <laughs> to stay in the prime universe, I guess. <laughs> so as we said before, the Vulcan ambassador does in fact die. But before he does, he passes his Katra to Salar. Now, when Salar was a child, she witnessed her father's death and learned from her mother the mission of Vulcans to take Katra to Mount Salea, climb the steps and add it to the, the repository of of Vulcan Katras there. And so we kind of get this, you know, it's her mission. She sees this through, uh, which I thought was a really nice touch. We haven't really seen Katras in Star Trek outside of uh, Spock and McCoy, and then more recently, Sarek and Burnham in Discovery. So I thought it was a, a neat path for the story to take. And I have to admit, I kind of wasn't thinking about that reading this until we got to that part. I like the whole parallel of her past life and going to Mount Salea with her father's Katra and seeing her mother do that. And now she's repeating that with this ambassador's Katra in herself. And she knows what to do because she's seen it before as a child. The one thing I was kind of hoping was maybe a little more emotional connection that maybe she's hesitant to want to do this because she saw her father die in this manner. And then maybe she's afraid to do the same because it would bring back those horrible memories. But at the same time, it's like, well, she is a Vulcan adult at this point, And I don't think she would be that emotionally scarred, at least to the point that she couldn't, she would hesitate to take the Katra of the ambassador and take it to Mount Salea. So I, it works. It's, it's a nice little backstory to her about who she is today and what she went through as a kid and how those uh, relate to each other. The one thing, interestingly, that she is somewhat hesitant to do is continue the negotiations on behalf of the ambassador. And I thought that was a really cool part of the story where Picard kind of convinces her to take on this role by relaying his experience of um, providing some calm to Ambassador Sarek in the third season of TNG when he had to negotiate and he kind of lent some of his calm, dignified poise and and Sarek 
kind of unloaded his emotional turmoil a bit into Picard's mind so that he could uh, see those negotiations through. I thought that was a really neat callback and a really nice bit of motivation there. Yeah, I think that's some of my favorite parts of the book is Picard talking to her. And he's like, look, I'm I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not going to give you a command. But from my experience and my melding with Sarek, and this is, you know, I still spoke on behalf of him. So, you know, think about what the ambassador would want you to do. And so, yeah, that was a nice scene. Yeah, definitely. Well, I I personally have to give this one just as strong a recommendation as I've given the past issues. It really does feel like we're back in the TNG, you know, heyday with these stories. And again, there's a lot of pieces just kind of being moved and that sort of thing. It feels like the negotiation storyline is wrapped up here. It feels like that's kind of done. But we still have the Barkley question to deal with. And how that's all going to get resolved because the prime Barkley right now is in a stasis chamber in his quarters <laughs> and hopefully uh, nobody stumbles in on that. Barkley, of course, says that they have to have the date at Sonia's quarters because his are really messy. <laughs> yeah, when I saw him in the stasis chamber, I'm like, really? He has a stasis chamber just sitting around in his cabin? And then I realized, oh, wait, you know, then he mentions the mere Barkley says, you know, uh, you know, it was a lot of work to get this thing and put it together and get it in here. I'm like, Oh, okay. It wasn't just like, you know, Barkley kept, keeps status chambers in his quarters or anything, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was definitely odd, but, uh, I, I think he actually says something along the lines of it was hard to requisite requisition these parts and get them in here. And I'm like, don't think about that too hard because like, why the heck would you be requisitioning these things? But anyway, <laughs> pretty interesting but yeah no i really like this one and uh i think uh i'm not sure how many issues there are i know they've released uh dates for issues four and five i'm not sure how long this miniseries is yeah i'm looking here in memory alpha and it is six issues so we're halfway through the series okay perfect so yeah i'm definitely looking forward to seeing how this goes and the idea, actually, that we're only halfway through, that's kind of cool. So there's a lot more story to come here. Yep, and a lot more ne negotiating. <laughs> awesome. Well, speaking of negotiating, what do you say we jump to the feature and check in on Ambassador Worf and see how his negotiations are going? I will agree to that negotiation. So as I mentioned earlier today, we are talking about the Star Trek The Next Generation novel, number 61, Diplomatic Implausibility by Keith R.A. DeCandido. Now this, to me, is a really interesting novel. We get an introduction of a lot of elements that will continue forward in other books. And it strikes me as odd, first of all, that this is a Next Generation novel because we don't see much of the Next Generation crew the story mostly centers on Worf and his new role as an ambassador. So this novel takes place shortly after the final episode of Deep Space Nine, where Worf becomes a Federation ambassador to the Klingon Empire, as we see at the end of that series. A role that didn't last all that long because we do know that he's back in Starfleet by the time of Star Trek Nemesis. In this novel, we see his actual first assignment as a Federation ambassador. And I'm kind of curious as to how you think he performed in this role. He's got an interesting mission. It's kind of a little bit of a generic 
alien of the week mission, but kind of an interesting one as well. Um, how do you think Worf comes across as an ambassador? I think he comes across as an ambassador as he does when he was a security officer on uh, the Enterprise or even when he was on Deep Space Nine and his role there. Um very much the same way. It just seemed almost like another Starfleet mission of his because so many times we see our Starfleet officers being ambassadors in a sense, you know, they're always negotiating. They're always uh, working through these diplomatic missions. So the, it, it really felt like it could have just been a TNG or DS nine episode where Worf is being sent to go help out with this incident uh, with this planet and the Klingon Empire. So as what I think of him as an ambassador, I thought that he has done just as well as he usually does. Um, so yeah, this story, basically as it starts out, he's he's just become an ambassador. And near the beginning of the book is where we get a bit of the TNG crew because he is actually ferried to his first assignment part of the way aboard the USS Enterprise. So he gets to meet up with his pals from the next generation. And this time he doesn't make, have to make up some lame excuse that they cut away from for why he's there. He's actually there for a real reason. He doesn't have to say like, oh, I was at the Manzar colony when, and then it just fades off. He's actually there for a reason, which is kind of cool. I liked this little bit and it's, it's very brief. The next generation crew is not in there much. But I like his kind of reconnecting with them a little bit and these relationships kind of picking up again where he left off. Uh, I especially liked the little comment on Riker and Troy getting back together because Worf had been, of course, dating Deanna at the end of The Next Generation. And then we don't know what their status was in Generations when the Enterprise crashed, but he took off pretty quickly after that and was not on the enterprise e so you know the kind of interesting dynamic there i thought was a really cool little brief exploration yeah i was going to mention that part too because he specifically asked you know how is diana you know and and so he's spending a lot of time with Riker, and i like Riker is kind of needling wharf and kind of picking on him and then they have a little party for wharf which he doesn't really want to have a little party but picard wants to have something for him and make a toast you know for being an ambassador what i like about reading this book right now and seeing him on the enterprise is as we're working through the a time two series this book takes place in that same time frame so it's mm -hmm. that, this book almost feels like it's taking place just a little before the books that we're on right now. We just had done in the previous episode of Time to Love. I think this takes a place a little before that. Uh, but it's great because it's fitting right into that time frame that we're already <laughs> invested in. Did you pick up on the little hint that tells you exactly where in those it kind of takes place or could take place i know i did because i remember thinking oh this takes place here but i can't remember what that was <laughs> well in this novel we actually get baby face striker because apparently he's still clean shaven from his uh, little escapades with deanna in insurrection which he also was due to a couple of references he was still clean shaven in the Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore novels, but in the ones that were currently on by Robert Greenberger, he's apparently grown his uh, beard back. So <laughs> for the obsessive Star Trek fans, we know for sure that it happens before a time to love, 
and possibly before or after the other books. We're not sure there. Okay, but that's it's sometime somewhere in there. Okay, that's why I was thinking it was right so sometime a little before Time to Love because I remember there was something that indicated that to me. And you're right, and and I like how uh, Clang the Klingon from A Matter of Honor who knows Riker sees him later in this book and says, you know, you should grow the beard back. <laughs> I loved the little bit where he was thinking to himself, hmm, maybe I should grow the beard back and then he remembered deanna saying yuck and he's like yeah no never mind <laughs> i remember seeing a video on youtube that showed like inconsistencies in tng where she says about the beard back i've never kissed you with a beard and then all of a sudden they show these scenes from tng where she kissed him with a beard <laughs> mm -hmm, absolutely and one of them you could she does actually kiss him with a beard a few times for sure but one of them that's always stated is she kissed Thomas Riker with a beard. So maybe she likes Thomas Riker with a beard, but Will Riker without the beard. Uh, and I don't know what that says about any kind of weird relationships there, but we'll leave that to listeners' imaginations. <laughs> I, uh, I don't think it would be much of a difference. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope not. I don't know. I think... Actually, Marina Sirtis has gone on the record as saying she thought Thomas Riker was cuter. <laughs> I don't know how she made that determination, but I like it. So we said that the Enterprise ferries Worf part of the way. The rest of the way, they're actu he's actually ferried aboard another ship, and that's the IKS Gorkun. Well, this is the first time we see that ship and this crew, but it's mostly made up of characters that we've seen in previous star treks before and i kind of wanted just really quickly to kind of run down those characters and talk a little bit about them so we've already mentioned him captain clag who was first seen in the tng episode a matter of honor he was the second officer of the iks pog and that was the ship that riker was on as uh an exchange officer as the first officer so He's from that episode. He's the um, he's the Klingon that Riker talks to about his father who's back home waiting to die. And basically, there's a lot of really great scenes between those two characters in that in that episode, which makes the fact that they kind of reunite in this novel really interesting. I thought that was a really cool scene. Yeah, I, I like the scene in here because it reminds me of that episode and it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who this Klingon is. Because when I was going into this book, I haven't read any of the IKS Gorkun series books. And that's one reason why we wanted to start with this is because it's going to lead into those books. And we want to kind of focus on Klingons for a while since they were a focus on Discovery recently and will probably be so somewhat at least in season two of Discovery. But it was great because I was like, okay, this captain, I've seen him on screen before. I know who he is. So that's a great start. And seeing, again, talking about the whole scene with Riker is really wonderful, too. And this character has a lot of really interesting things going on. He's, uh, for one thing, lost his arm in battle uh, during the Dominion War and has had to deal with that. And Keith DeCandido is setting up a lot of really interesting things, I think, for these characters. We also have the first officer of the Gorkon, and that is Drex, and he is the son of Chancellor Martok. He was first seen in the Deep Space Nine episode, The Way of the Warrior, and famously didn't really get along with anybody. He uh, 
tried to beat up Morn. He and a bunch of friends beat the crap out of Garrick. He had an ar- many arguments with Worf. Uh, I think he's he's got that very distinctive voice where he says, as long as you wear that child's uniform, we're allies. Make sure you never take it off. I think he said that to Odo, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, well, because he was t- telling Odo that he needs to keep the uniform on, because as long as that uniform's on, they will remain allies. Because right. they're allies with Bajoran, <laughs> but if he ever takes it off, then he's the found one of the founders. He's something else. Right. And the reason I know yeah. this, Dan, is because just out of coincidence, I watched that episode today. <laughs> nice one of my absolute favorites so that's that's really cool <laughs> yeah i heard uh on a podcast somebody mentioned it recently i was like i haven't watched that in a while so i watched it today it had nothing to do with the discussion for today's show though so it's a coincidence oh that's awesome yeah so drex is kind of uh I, i've always been curious because we never see him again in deep space nine he's he does have a bit of a role in the two book series, The Left Hand of Destiny, if I remember correctly. But as far as the Deep Space Nine series goes, he was we never saw him again. So we never knew how he dealt with having a father who turned out to be a changeling and then getting his father back and then his father becoming a chancellor. <laughs> like it would have been kind of interesting to see things from that perspective. And we do get kind of the fallout because Worf is now a part of Martok's family and Drex hates war. Yeah. So there's some interesting stuff there for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, they're kind of brothers, but they, they're at each other's throats. Well, actually, Worf is almost like the older brother who dad tells him, you know, make sure your younger brother behaves. Right. And actually, Worf does kind of get that assignment from Martok. Drex has kind of relied on Martok's honor to carry him through. And Martok says Drex needs to find his own honor. And uh, Worf, can you kind of guide him or make sure that happens or, or help him to make that happen? So that's that's an interesting dynamic as well. And little side note, bit of trivia, Drex named after Doug Drexler, one of the um, artists and CGI modelers and, and effects people on uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So did they Enterprise model one. Drex's personality after Doug Drexler? <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, I would assume not. <laughs> and then we have another officer named Talk. And uh, eagle-eyed viewers might remember him as one of the young Klingons that was rescued from the Romulan prison camp by Worf in the TNG episode Birthright Part 2. He was... Uh, the young guy that knew nothing of what it was like to be a Klingon and kind of Worf mentored him much to the consternation of the camp leader and all that stuff. He becomes the second officer of the Gorkon. Uh, he's not initially in that role, but uh, yeah, that that's an interesting bit as well. I really like this character because I felt that he had a lot of energy in that episode and I think it's really interesting we get uh we get that energy through his character in this book as well. Gee, I wonder how he advanced in his position on the ship. He's a Klingon. Hmm, I wonder how. Hmm. I'm sure it was he applied to be promoted to, you know, no, 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 he straight up kills a guy. <laughs> See, maybe that's what Harry Kim should have done on Voyager to get a promotion. There you go. Thinking outside the box. I like it. I like it. Well, we have the helmsman uh, of the of the Gorkon, and this is a temporary assignment. He will not continue beyond this book, it looks like. But the helmsman is Leskett, who was the helmsman of the IKS Rotaran 
in the DS9 episode, Soldiers of the Empire. And I like this character because he's always very sarcastic. Uh, I remember from that episode, Soldiers of the Empire, where um, Martok orders him to set a course around the whatever nebula because there might be Jem'Hadar ships in there. And he's like, you want to avoid battle? Martok says, yes, we can't afford to bomb. He's like, I, sir, plotting a course around the nebula. <laughs> I just love this guy. He's kind of a jerk. <laughs> well, that brings us to the weapons officer. These See, it's funny because all these characters that we've talked about, they're all from past stuff. So it's kind of neat. It's weird that they've all been brought together on this ship somehow. But anyway, we have the weapons officer, Rodek, who is actually formerly Worf's brother, Kern. And in the Deep Space Nine episode, Sons of Moog, he wanted Worf to kill him in the Moktovor ceremony because he had lost his family's honor. Uh, but Worf was unable to do that. A solution was come up with where his memories were altered and he became Rodek from uh, this other house that a friend of Worf's controlled. So now he's the weapons officer on the Gorkon. And of course, Worf's going to come face to face with him, which, you know, is awkward for Worf. Rodek doesn't know any about any of this, but Worf's pretty torn up about no, it. No, but Rodek does look at Worf and ask him, you know, why are you looking at me strange? Is there something wrong? Is there something about me? What is going on? So it is kind of an awkward situation for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And Worf, of course, can't really say exactly why. But uh, he's an ambassador. He's pretty quick on his feet. He knows what to say. <laughs> we do have medical officer Borak, who we've not seen before that I'm aware of. This is an interesting character. She studied medicine in the Federation, and she hopes to modernize Klingon medicine. And she studied at Starfleet Medical while Beverly Crusher was in charge. So she has all these weird ideas of, you know, advanced medicine and uh, looking after people instead of just letting them die when they've you know, taken injuries on the battlefield or something like that. And she has prosthetic limbs, which Klingons are really wary of and all that sort of stuff. I thought this character is pretty interesting. Yeah, she is because the fact that she did study at Starfleet medical and she knows Beverly Crusher and she has a, I, I almost wanted to say she has a different way of approaching medicine, almost more of a Federation way of doing medicine versus a Klingon way. But then again, maybe this is how most medical Klingon personnel are like anyway. We're always so focused on the different crew members of these ships and the warrior way. But as we know, you can't operate a society with everyone being a warrior. So there may be other medical officers like this in the Klingon empire. It's very, yeah. It, I, I like that we're getting more variation of the Klingons rather than just the one type for sure. Well, one character though, that, does definitely fall in the traditional Klingon mold would be the chief engineer of the Gorkon, Kurak, who was first seen in the TNG episode Suspicions. She was one of the uh, scientists that was interested in Dr. Rega's metaphasic shielding. And she yelled at Crusher and got angry and is, is just generally a very angry Klingon. Uh, interestingly enough, in that episode played by Trisha O'Neill, who played... Captain Rachel Garrett of the Enterprise C. So that's kind of an interesting little. I never really put those two together before. Wow. Okay. <laughs> never even thought about that. That's great. It's it's a random thing, but 
when you once you know that and you watch that, you're like, oh, yeah, but uh, great actor. I've always really liked her and everything she's in. So it was fun to picture her while I was reading this as well. So when Captain Garrett went through the wormhole back into the past, maybe she was she escaped and then she re-engineered herself to be a Klingon and changed her name. And this is really Captain Garrett. That must be it. Yeah. No, forget <laughs> that. <laughs> Well, she does have an assistant engineer as well, and this guy is named Val, or Val, I'm not sure. But he is definitely a Klingon that falls outside of the norm. He's described as short, kind of small, diminutive. He has combed hair, that's that's short, I should say. He's kind of meek, and he's described by other Klingons as having a whiny voice like a Ferengi. But he's also a technical genius and is responsible for the replicators on the Gorkon making a really good rokeg blood pie, for one thing, and a number of other things, like in the middle of a battle, restoring shields up to almost 100%. And he's just kind of a whiz when it comes to engineering stuff. Yeah, I don't think the intent was to make this Klingon to be like a TOS Klingon, but I mean, they have, you know, perfect human-like teeth and he's got the combed hair and all that but the fact that he's you know just kind of shorter and whiny he's almost a comical type character a little bit yeah i i feel like um the the way that the other klingons look at him is probably mostly governed by the fact that he's not in your face assertive like most klingon warriors are so you know he's probably not even all that whiny he's probably just as whiny as a human would be to a klingon but we humans have an excuse we're just weak little humans that klingons have to put up with this guy is a klingon he shouldn't be acting like this what's going on kind of thing right but uh, an interesting character for sure and then we also have another woman character Cravor, i think her name is pronounced and she's a lower ranking officer and she's assigned to Worf kind of as a bodyguard during this novel. It's funny. I like this character. She's assigned to Worf by Drex as supposedly an insult because um, I believe her family doesn't have honor or something like that. And Worf is supposed to see this as an insult. But of course, Worf's awesome. He sees the value in people, not just by their family or history or whatever but by who they are and this character she's pretty awesome herself she's loyal she's inquisitive and she's clever she comes up with she actually like gives her opinion and puts in her her thoughts when when Worf's trying to figure things out and stuff I really thought this character was a cool addition to the cast no I agree she's very interesting in the fact that I thought that she was just going to be some throwaway character but she really is more than what they, the crew, are giving her credit for. She should be a very integral part of this crew. And for whatever reason she's been placed in this position, she deserves more than what she's getting. So it was nice to see her along along with Worf. I sometimes expected there might be some romantic element between the two. Not that the book hinted hmm. at that, but I thought maybe they would go in that direction. But no, there was nothing like that. There was never showing any interest between Worf and Cravor uh, between each other romantically at all. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but 
that's uh, that's an interesting thought for sure. And, you know, Worf at this time is still getting over the death of Jadzia Dax, and that comes up in here, too. Not a lot, but it is mentioned about, you know, his past relationships, and he's still, you know, going through the pain of losing Jadzia. So even though it's been a good year or so since her passing, uh, I don't think he's ready for a relationship anyway. Yeah, that's a good point for sure. So the ship they're on, like I said, is the IKS Gorkon. It's a relatively new ship, kind of just been put through its paces. It's gotten its shakedown crews and we witness its first battle in this book, for example. And this is kind of a, a brand new ship and we're getting the very beginning of the mission here. So what this book really is doing is kicking off, like we mentioned, the IKS Gorkon series, which is makes it interesting that it's a TNG novel. But we'll 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 talk about that later for sure. But it's it's odd. It's weird that this is a numbered next generation novel. Yeah, and you're right. We will talk about that later. Ooh, look, stick around for that. So uh, <laughs> you know, the one thing about this that kind of bothers me is everything that you just went through, and you mentioned earlier, like, oh, we've seen all these characters of this starship, I shouldn't say starship, but of this Klingon ship, on different episodes of TNG or DS9. And that's part of the problem I have, is that they've all encountered the Enterprise or DS9 at some point or another, and there's actually a scene where all the officers are talking about all the different times they had run into Worf. Well, Worf rescued me <laughs> from this. Well, I saw Worf in a battle here, and I saw, it's like that's where the galaxy starts to feel small, because everybody on the ship has had a run-in with Worf at some point or another, as opposed to maybe sprinkling in two or three characters from the series and bringing in some new characters. I agree though. It's fun to say, Hey, I know who these characters are. I've seen them before and now they're all together. That is cool. But at the same time, mm, how realistic is it that they would all know Worf at some point or another? Well, it's just further evidence of my thesis that Star Trek is the story of Worf. This is what I've always said. Worf is the central character in everybody's lives in Star Trek. So. <laughs> well, then there you go. <laughs> this is the proof right there. I think it's actually a problem that Borak and Val have never heard of Worf. It's weird. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Strange things happen. <laughs> but yeah, so like we said, Worf is an ambassador and he's sent to this planet called now the Klingon spelling is T a capital D Tad. I don't know. I don't know how to That's pronounce how I was reading it the whole time was Tad. So this planet called Tad, which is the Klingon word for frozen, I believe because this is a very cold world and it's home to an alien race called the Alhamati. Now this planet is a conquered world of the Klingon empire uh, because it's rich in topoline deposits and the Klingons have conquered this and there are problems with rebels. So during the period where the Federation and the Klingons were at war with each other, when the Klingons invaded Cardassia, the Alhamadi had kind of reached out to the Federation to request negotiations because the Federation was no longer an ally of the Klingon Empire. And then during the Dominion War, the Alhamadi took back control of the planet and then the Klingons kind of uh, reconquered it. There's still issues with the 
uh, rebels and trying to wrest control from the Klingons. So the Federation decides to send an ambassador, and that ambassador is Worf. We have a bunch of characters here. We have a bunch of things they're dealing with. What did you kind of think of this mission and like the politics at play with this? What I like about the relationship between the Federation and the Klingons in this is that this alien race does call for Federation help when they take control back of their planet because the Klingons are dealing with that Dominion War. They're fighting the Jem'Hadar. They're trying to attack Cardassia, as we saw in the Way of the Warrior. All the, when all those things are taking place, this race is able to take back their planet, and they call for Federation help. But the Federation is also bogged down in this war, so they don't respond right away. So we know that there's a, at least a somewhat healthy relationship between the Federation and the Klingons at this point. I mean, they're not at war with each other, but when the Klingons get control of this planet and then Worf is on this mission, then the Klingons are just like, you know, why is he here? And he's getting some support from some Klingons like Martok and other Klingons, not so much. And so I love the, the bit of tension that Worf has with some Klingons versus other Klingons. And there really is that point where Klingons are trying to figure out if, you know, they should accept Worf, if they should accept the Federation getting involved. This isn't something you should be here for. This isn't your territory. You're in Klingon space. Why does the Federation have to be here? And Worf's answer is because this alien race called for us. But at the same time, well, yeah, but that was four years ago. And now you're just showing up. And he's like, well, you know, I have to respond to it. You know, the Federation needs to respond. And he's responding to this as an ambassador and also on behalf of Martok himself. Yeah, I found that was an interesting aspect to it as well, that because Martok requested Worf specifically to deal with this and the fact that Worf is a part of Martok's family, there's kind of this impression that there's some nepotism going on here. And Clegg in particular has a very low opinion of Worf and thinks that the only reason he's on this assignment is because he's part of Martok's family. I thought that was a really interesting aspect to it. And it's rare that they're able to set things up that two characters that you really respect are on opposite sides of this opinion of each other kind of thing. Because I really like Clegg. I think he's a good character. But I also think he's very much mistaken about Worf. And it's just a, really a matter of him being mistaken, I think, because he has good reasons to come to the conclusions he does. But I think by the end of this, Worf kind of proves his own worth and Clegg kind of sees that even though he's still not 100% behind Worf, he does respect him more by the end. Yes, he does. I totally agree with that. And again, I don't think this mission would have even happened for Worf had uh, these aliens reached out to the Federation four years earlier. So none of this would have happened. Uh, but because they did reach out, now Worf is involved. So, yeah, Clang is very accepting of Riker because he knows Riker. And so it's funny how he's not as accepting of Worf when he is a Klingon. It's not that Klang has a problem with Federation officers because of his acceptance of Riker, but yet he has a problem with Worf, but not a huge problem. It's not like he's fighting him or whatever. I think the thing that really gets to Klang the most is when he is told that Worf is in charge of the mission, that Klang, you may yeah. be captain of the ship, 
but Worf is calling the shots for the mission. So there's a tension dynamic of, okay, who's in charge now? Is this a mission-related issue, or is this a ship-related issue? And if it's a ship-related issue, does it fall under it being part of the mission? So who's really in charge at certain aspects for certain things? Who calls the shots? It makes for a really cool dynamic in the book, because I think if this were a story with just a generic Klingon captain... And this may be me being just a little bit racist against Klingons as they're usually portrayed. You know, a generic Klingon captain would have been, this is outrageous. You can't be in control here. I'm in control. Blah, 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 blah. But because we get this character who, you know, has this backstory and is someone who's being set up to be the, the lead in a book series after this, he doesn't like the situation, but he goes along with it and you know, he may be kind of grating against it and gritting his teeth, but he still is willing to see things through and not be unreasonable and give the benefit of the doubt, which I th- thought was a really cool aspect of the story. You could not write a book about a ship full of Klingons if all they're doing is yelling at each other. <laughs> right. Exactly. So there's almost an aspect of the book that makes it feel like a Starfleet starship book you know the captain the first officer the engineer the medical officer it's like there were times i was reading this and i thought you really could replace all of these characters with starfleet characters you really could make this book where there's an ambassador on a mission a diplomatic mission to work with a planet and the starship is showing up and it's you know trying to help and it's you really can take this ikes gorkon series which i haven't read yet but I have a feeling you could look at the series and say, oh, it's just Star Trek, but with Klingons doing the roles of captain, first officer, medical officer, engineer, so on and so forth. Yeah. But at the same time, Keith DeCandido doesn't really pull the punches with regards to it being a Klingon ship, because early on, we do get that scene where the second officer is being negligent in his duties not reporting things that, you know, might be important and endanger the safety of the ship. And Talk challenges him on this and says to the captain, I noted, you know, there's a there's a bomb, a mine, I think, in space or something that they the sensors don't detect until they're nearly right on top of it. And the second officer says, oh, I, I deemed that not a threat or something like that. And Talk says, I noted that you know, a million kilometers back, but he overruled me. And, you know, there's this kind of thing. And then we actually get the challenge and then killing of the second officer and talk taking his position. So, you know, it does feel like a Star Trek ship with all those traditional roles, but still with that Klingon feeling to it. And I do like that we get that battle early in the book to kind of just set the tone that, you do advance in rank by killing your immediate superior, but it's not chaos. You know, there's a very strict code as to when and how that happens and it works for the Klingons. And I think that was one of my biggest trepidations in heading into reading these books was like, I don't know if I want to read a book about a bunch of officers killing each other and being mean and snarling all the time. But after reading this book, I'm like, okay, I I think this works. I can get behind this. I'm interested. Yeah, same here. I'm totally 100% with you on that. I felt the same way. It does not feel like 
just a bunch of Klingons killing each other. It's almost as if an author sat down and wrote a Starfleet starship without coffee. Oh, there All you the go. characters are cranky <laughs> and they're just mad, like, oh, you know, but they still have a duty. They know what their jobs are. And, you know, it's almost like Balana in a lot of way when you think of her in engineering. I mean, she's professional. She's but, you know, she can get a little hot headed and a little frustrated more so than others at times. And that's kind of how this is. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. You know, it's, it's just it's it's Star Trek, but with an edge to it. And then occasionally the blades come out and somebody doesn't walk away from right. it. You know, it's just, yeah, it's it's very familiar. It's one of those things that I was, ne- I never really wanted a Klingon television series, like a, a Star Trek Klingon, where we followed the adventures of Klingons because I think it would be hard to relate to. But an episode like Soldiers of the Empire that takes place mostly on a Klingon ship, you know, just the little tastes every once in a while. I can get behind that. I like it. So getting back to the mission, we've got these rebels on the planet Tad, and they're led by a guy named Retrenat. And these names, I don't know if I'm getting them even close to right, but these aliens, the Alhamadi, they're kind of wolvish almost. They walk mostly on all fours, but sometimes on two legs. They're furry. They're kind of like wolves living on this planet. And these rebels have been attacking Klingon ships and refineries. And we also find out that they're aided by an alien race called the Creel, who have appeared in other novels in the past. They're kind of this alien race that's perpetually at war with the Klingon Empire. The Klingons hate them and the Creel hate them back. We don't realize at first that they're aiding the the rebels. Should we get into spoilers here? Yep. Probably get into spoilers. spoiler time. All right, we're getting into spoilers. So basically, we end up finding out that the rebels don't have any particular allegiance to the Federation or help from them because they've also gone to the Creel to help them as well. So they're basically looking for anybody and, you know, everybody and anybody who can help them get rid of the Klingons because they don't like the Klingons. And that's basically it. And Worf has to kind of negotiate this relationship now one thing that i found odd is that the klingons have conquered this world and the federation seems to be kind of okay with that like there's not there's never any real pushback against the klingons saying you can't conquer an alien planet we're just kind of okay with you controlling a planet like that it's kind of one of those things that you kind of just have to accept to make the story work, but it always just kind of bugged me in the back of my mind. See, that didn't bother me. Okay. So, well, cause I, why didn't that bother you? <laughs> because, you know, so there's the, when you look at the maps, like, um, stellar cartography maps book that Larry Namachek has put out and there's a new one coming out now, by the way, an updated version, which we'll probably talk about in a future show here, at least in the news. If you look at that and you see, wow, you know, look at all that space, that's Klingon Empire space. I always like to think that Starfleet has not even gone deep into that space. And there's all these planets that they're not Klingon planets. You don't have that whole sector of space that's just filled with Klingons, at least I assume that there's different alien races and they're all under Klingon rule or they're all behind the Klingon curtain, whether they're being ruled by the Klingons or just controlled or just blocked off from the rest of the universe by the Klingons. 
I looked at this plan as being the same way that it's in this Klingon territory that the Federation hasn't been able to travel to. And so because they reached out to the Federation, the Federation by Martok was allowed to come into that area of space, come to this planet and say, you know, this is Klingon controlled. I mean, we're not going to take it over. And it's been this way for two centuries now. So this is in Klingon space. It's Klingon controlled. So all we have to do is try to help these people from what they were asking for in the first place and see how we can mediate between them and the Klingon Empire. You don't buy that, though. Well, I mean, it's one of those things that I'm just like. It, it, it always seems odd to me that the Federation is so chummy with the Klingon Empire in the 24th century when the Klingon Empire still goes and conquers planets. <laughs> Like, I just, it's so against what the Federation ideals are that I, I guess it's kind of a necessary evil to kind of get along in the galaxy to just kind of say like, okay, you can subjugate and enslave those people. That's fine. I guess the way I look at it is <laughs> that if there's a town in North Korea and they reach out to the United States for help, we would try to probably mediate somehow between that town and North Korea and not necessarily go in and push North Korea out of that town because it's within the territory. Yeah, no, and I, I'm I'm not saying push the Klingons out or anything like that, but I'm saying like, I, it, it's not within the scope of the story, but I feel like the Federation would say something like, I, I don't know about you holding this planet and keeping these people as slaves. I don't think we're going to send our ambassador because we're just going to protest the whole idea. I don't know. It doesn't no, but make Starfleet sense. It does send their ambassador of Worf and Worf is coming. And this is where we get into spoilers, but Worf, you know, says, okay, well, I think the best solution for this is to remove these people, the, the aliens, the natives of this planet to another planet, which that was shocking to me. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what I, I, is going on here? That would be like saying, let's take, you know, Native Americans out of America and move them somewhere else so they can live on their own. I mean, it's just they were there first. Yeah. And what about, you know, until what what if some rare mineral is discovered on that planet now? And then the Klingons are like, oh, we have to have that. Like, it's just that that seems shocking to me as well, like because I always just put myself in the place of the alien species in the book and say like, how would I feel if us as Canadians, the, the United States decided we want all the resources in Canada and we're going to subjugate your people. And you know, the EU ambassador says, well, how about we just move everybody in Canada um, to this part of British Columbia that the U S doesn't want. And you guys can all live there. It'll be fine. What? No, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't know if Worf really meant it or not. I mean, there's nothing in here that says he was just saying that just to play them, you know, into yeah. a different thought pattern and like try to deceive them into something else. But I couldn't believe that he really meant that he would move, suggest moving all these people. But he does talk to... I think it was a Vulcan Admiral or somebody about it. And she's like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. And it's also kind of funny that that aspect of the story doesn't really go anywhere because he does kind of propose it to them as well. And they say, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And it's like, oh, okay. 
And then that part of the story's kind of dropped. And it's, why did that even come up, really? Yeah, and why didn't Worf say, you know, you should leave these people alone. You should leave the planet altogether and let them live their lives and let them trade with you these resources or minerals or something. I don't know. It just seems really odd. Which to me, like, that seems like the position that the Federation would take. And I kept waiting for that to be. And I mean, it would be dismissed out of hand by the Klingons. They'd be like, no, we're not giving. Which is why I don't think he did that. Yeah, but at the same time, it it feels like that would be the official position of the Federation by default on this and have Worf communicate that to the Klingons and then have it rejected and then say, okay, let's see what we can do now. It just seems weird that it never, like the Federation just like, oh, Klingon rule of this planet using slave labor. Yep, okay, let's work within that. I would just think that maybe it's just that, you know, Worf knows, okay, the only way out of this, we're not going to get rid of the Klingons. We're just going to, you know, have to move the people. I don't know. You know, that's the only way out of this. But he does figure a way, a different way. Basically, what happens is this planet has an emperor, which is just basically a figurehead. Basically, he just fulfills the Klingon's wishes and the rest of the planet kind of ignores him because he's just this kind of figurehead leader. But the final solution is pretty interesting. This assistant engineer Val is very much out of place on the Gorkon. He's this technical genius that does good things for the ship, but he's not a warrior. He's not, he doesn't fit well into that lifestyle. And interestingly, the resolution is that this Val guy becomes the emperor of Tad and takes that role. I don't know. What did you think of that solution? Where, like, did you see that coming or what did you think of that? I didn't see it coming, but there was definitely uh impression early on that this governor who's a Klingon needs is old and outdated and really needs to be replaced and isn't efficient and doesn't really know what he's doing. And so something needs to change, but the solution of that, there's no real significant resources on the planet. So the Klingons shouldn't really be all that interested anyway, was very convenient. It's very convenient that, oh, you know, the whole reason this book that the Klingons are there and want to control this planet is for all this, these minerals these resources and well guess what we just found out there really aren't that many it's a very very small percentage of all the deposits that they were collecting from other places of the galaxy that really doesn't really have any impact so you really shouldn't have to be interested in this planet oh how convenient is that but then to say okay but it still needs some kind of rule because the Klingons are not going to just walk away from it and say, okay, you people can have your planet back. So he puts this vow there, this guy that we were talking about earlier, clean cut, you know, hair parted to the side, the nice teeth, the talks like a Ferengi and all that. He's kind of innocent, non-threatening. Let's just have him there as a figurehead, as an emperor. So for the most part, the people can still run their planet. They get it back. But he's just there just to kind of be that barrier and to show the Klingons that they still have a foot in it. It's a yeah, it's a convenient, odd kind of hand wavy resolution, which, you know, to me kind of ended up being, in my opinion, the only real weak part of this book was, yeah, that kind of really quick wrap up and 
the idea that this guy who's an assistant engineer would just happen to kind of be in the meeting where they're deciding what to do and they're like ah how about that guy (laughs) he's like uh okay (laughs) it just seemed very a lot of things seemed very convenient in this engineer one day emperor the next yeah that's quite the resume isn't it all right well the last thing i kind of wanted to talk about with regards to this book is the oddity of it being a numbered tng book so we talked a little bit about the tng cameo appearance but really nothing that they do is really essential to the story. It's kind of interesting if you look at the the cast of characters. Uh, we have Worf and Martok, Drex, Rodek, and Leskett, and they're all from Deep Space Nine. We have Clag and Tok and Kurak from TNG. So it's almost kind of a coin flip. Like, I feel like this could have been a Deep Space Nine novel because Worf was made an ambassador in Deep Space Nine, but it really has nothing to do with the station or Bajor or that situation. So maybe it makes more sense to make it TNG. But I think going forward, it was a really good choice to make this a separate series in the future. And this feels like maybe IKS Gorkon number zero or something like that. But it seems odd that like when you're going through the numbered TNG novels, this is just TNG number 61. And it feels like it's a totally different series. It gets back to that whole don't judge a book by its cover. In some ways, don't judge a book by its title. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> uh, and I and, and meaning the franchise title, not the actual title of the book. But yeah, so when I go into Star Trek books, because I've read so many of them, there's lots of situations like this where it's a TNG book. But for some reason, it's not just really about TNG and maybe there's a lot of deep space nine into that book and why they call it TNG. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that TNG sells better than deep space nine books. So when you have Worf, who's been in both series and this is really just a Worf book. And it's like you said, it's not really a TNG book and it's not really a deep space nine book. We don't see the station. We don't see the main characters and Keith DeCandida works in the enterprise early in this book for you know, half a chapter, roughly. Well, I guess it favors more TNG. When I read Star Trek books, I usually just ignore what if it says TNG Deep Space Nine or whatever on the cover, because I go into every book just thinking it's a Star Trek book. Perfect example, Rise of the Federation. They're titled Star Trek Enterprise. The Enterprise isn't in those books at all. Right. <laughs> so some of the characters. Yeah, it's just kind of the larger Star Trek Right. Universe, so I go into every basically. book as just like it's a larger Star Trek. So I've heard people complain, oh, is this really a TOS book if so-and-so's, I, you know, I don't know. But that's just how I am. So it doesn't it doesn't bother me. But I do feel like it's because, well, they TNG sells better and Worf was in TNG and this book doesn't really fit into either one of the series. That's a good way of looking at it. I like it. Well, I guess uh, all that's left is to really give our final thoughts and ratings for diplomatic implausibility. Well, I really enjoyed the book more than I thought I would. As we kind of indicated before, I wasn't too excited about a whole Klingon book. But I'm finding out, not just with this, but other books we've reviewed that have to do with Klingons, I'm really realizing I actually do like Klingon books. (laughs) So, And I think this has done really well. Um, of course, there's some things in there that, you know, little issues with I had with 
all the characters having been from different episodes of the series and they all just seem to be serving now on one ship together. It's like a big Klingon reunion. And <laughs> uh, the ending, not too bad. I mean, but maybe could have been a little stronger in its resolution. But overall, I was very impressed with it. So um, I'd say I would give this book 88 out of 100 Klingons that have not been on a TNG episode. Nice. All right. I like it. Yeah, I, I had a lot of the same thoughts you did. I think I was a little more excited to get into this one just because I had heard really good things about it. And I really did enjoy end up enjoying it. I think this might have been the fastest I've ever read a Star Trek novel um, other than, you know, ebook novellas kind of thing. But I started it on the afternoon of one day and finished it by noon the next day kind of thing. I just really found it a really quick page turner. You know, some of the stuff with the wrap up was a little bit convenient and kind of wrapped up a little easily and quickly, but that's really the only thing that keeps me from giving it a five out of five. So I'd have to give it, I'd say four out of five of Worf's Mechleths. I'd imagine he probably has different versions, you know, his ambassadorial one is I'm just hanging out with the enterprise crew one his casual one, you know, like I, I think he's got a bunch. I would just want to make a quick shout out to two things that we didn't mention, or maybe three things. Did we mention Wu Worf's aid? Oh, we, we didn't. Did. I'd meant to talk about him too. I liked yeah. him as a character. He was an interesting character. So yeah, he's a human Federation officer, but, uh, he's very, uh, he can fight any Klingon. He's very resourceful with that. I also like the romantic relationship between Leskit and Kurak. That was a, those were mm-hmm. some fun scenes there, especially when Les Kick uh, got called to duty and he's just in a t-shirt, basically. <laughs> that was that was a really great scene. That was definitely uh, a, a visual. Yes, anyway. <laughs> and that was played humorously throughout uh, for some of the book. And then the other thing I want to do a shout out on is there's a brief scene with Worf getting messages from uh, some USS Excalibur crew members from the new frontier series. So McHenry and Saleta uh, sent him a message and then Zach Cabron, who was, he was roommates with at Starfleet Academy sent him a message too. So I thought that was just a nice little Easter egg in there. Yeah. It was kind of a neat little tie into the Starfleet Academy young adult novels where all those most of those characters come from i thought that was that was really cool um going back to leskett and kirak too i really love how into the lore of star trek keith decandido is so you know all these little tiny references and i'm really impressed that for example leskett left a freshly slain lingta at the door of kirak which was mentioned in a deep space nine episode that Worf was supposed to have done and present to Jadzia at some point or something like that. So just little things like that, that, you know, Keith DeCandido, he's so into all the little minutia and lore and stuff. And that really comes through. And some of his references just really impress me in this one. Well, for our next episode, I think we should do it on Klingon. We'll just, you know, throughout the whole episode. Hmm, I like it. And then we'll have English subtitles on the bottom, like in Discovery. Perfect. (laughs) That's what we'll do. We have to make sure to wear really big teeth, though, so it's really hard to talk. (laughs) 
<laughs> I always remember uh, my favorite instance of that is uh, when Cisco, O'Brien, Odo all go undercover as Klingons in Deep Space Nine, and they have to contend with those teeth. And Cisco has one line. This is total tangent, but <laughs> are you questioning the validity of my plan? <laughs> I'm like, oh man, he had so much <laughs> trouble with that line. You can tell. <laughs> I remember that. That's hilarious. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's been fun talking about horrendous Klingon teeth today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! I love that Barkley says he's lost himself in Voyager because I have been there, man. Haven't we all, Reg? Haven't we all? It hits a little close to home. It does. I'm a little bit like Barkley in some ways. I, you know, I have just a little bit of paranoia to me. Awkward? No, a little paranoid. No, I don't think I'm awkward. No. Okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe a little bit. <laughs> well, you said you're like Barkley. Awkward. Give me a glass of wine and I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> Sent the hall. Excuse me. Sent the hall. The 602 Club. Well, and I think that uh, there's even, you know, a, a kernel of that conversation uh, reflected in when he is on uh, the, the airship with his dad. And it's very interesting because Indy gives, you know, they give the, the two versions of the story where, you know, you were distant, you didn't hang out with me, you didn't do these things, I didn't have a normal dad like every other kid. And then you hear, uh, you know, Henry Jones Sr. say, I never told you to wash behind your ears. I never checked up on your homework. I gave you all of the freedom and independence that you wanted. And if you were to ask any kid, they'd say that's what they wanted. And then you find out, to speak to the point about fact and truth, that that's not necessarily what you want. You want involvement. You want connection. You want to be together. You want to be part of your family unit. And you want it to be cohesive. I mean, you know, at a, at a baseline, that's what everybody wants. Earl Grey. And especially, like, toward the end, when it's like, Jean-Luc, what are you and I doing just, like, voyaging around the galaxy by ourselves on this <laughs> ship? Like, it makes perfect sense to you, but it makes no sense to me, yeah. right? Just the two of us, like, on this giant ship. It's well, like, when wow. it was just a small skeletal crew, you know, and she's still questioning, he's like... Why do we have all of these rooms and quarters? And and then Data just nonchalantly, well, we have, you know, we need uh, evacuation and we take diplomats around. Yeah. It. And like he's listing it like, well, duh, this is why we have it. And Picard's like, that'll be enough, Data. Warp 5. Well, you remember it was like when it was 42. You weren't very reasonable then, were you? Uh, no, I was not. Exactly. I was absolutely not. I was yelling at a tree in my backyard. It was not a pretty sight. <laughs> all I know is, all I know, big men in heat is not a good idea. Oh, that sounds like a great band. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of those shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And beyond, you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscriber. <laughs> hit the subscriber. <laughs> Ow, that hurts. No, what I meant to say is, if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. 
in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. <laughs> Sounds like I'm doing this with the movie phone guy. <laughs> Press 1 for the RSS link. Press 2 for the third-party apps. <laughs> well, if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and psychiatric meds for my co-host when he keeps lapsing into the movie phone voice, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trackfm. Thank you for calling Movie Phone. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email... You can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to take this moment to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not recording the Klingon version of Movie Phone, where can we find you? I don't know how to speak Klingon. I don't know. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about Star Wars, of course. And, of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and you'll find us there. And Dan, when you're not sitting on the bridge of a starship in just a t-shirt, where can people find you? <laughs> or maybe they don't want to find you. I don't know. I That's awkward. Especially especially when you're the helmsman. You're right up front. That's not good. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't want to see the view from the back. <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> well, when that's not happening... You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can also find me on my Treklet review website at treklet.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And I get to say that again because there's new Star Trek novels coming finally. Yay. 
And uh, you can also find me on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Productions, where uh, I actually just launched a new monthly roundup show that I still don't have a name for. The leading contender right now is the Ractigino Roundup, but uh, I don't know. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I kind of like that too. I don't know. Mulling it over. But yeah, anyway, and you can also find me in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time... Live long! And... read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.